if you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. I'm excited this morning to start a new series of messages on Jonah. If you're just joining us, please take time uh, to comment below and tell us that you're with us this morning. Tell us how many are watching with you. We'd love to have a sense on who's watching and how many are watching as we engage this morning. And I'd also encourage you to share this to uh, your Facebook page, your personal Facebook page. If you've not already done that, take a moment and share that to your own personal Facebook page this morning. We're going to be looking at Jonah 1 this morning as we talk about God's global heart. God's global heart in the first 16, chapter, first 16 verses of Jonah. Uh, this is a little different. Let's just all say it like it is. This is a different experience this morning. But let me make a quick suggestion of one of the ways you can engage this morning right where you are. I know many of you normally take notes, but I would encourage you where you are in your living room, at your desk, at your kitchen table, to pull out a pad, pull out a pencil, pull out a pen, or get your phone out. And I want you to take notes with this, me this morning. And the reason I want you to do that is because I know this medium makes it a little more challenging. I'm going to give you specific things, specific points to write down at specific moments or to type on your phone. But I want you to engage at a high level with us today so we can really kind of connect with each other. So if you're not already planning to do that, take a moment right now and grab something to write with so that we can be together in that way. Jonah chapter 1. <clears throat> it is our custom to stand as we read. And so uh, in your living room, wherever you're at there this morning, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word in Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 16 today as we honor the reading of God's word. Here's Jonah 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Verse 4, But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe his God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who it is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, what is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. Verse 12, he answered them, pick me up. And throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. 
Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Let's pray together. Father, as we jump into your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would remove distraction. Lord, I know this is a different season we're living in. God, different really just doesn't even do it justice. But I pray, Lord, that through this medium that you've established, through the internet, through live streaming, God, that you would speak to the hearts of every single person listening and watching watching this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in 1944, the Allied forces uh, enacted Operation Overlord which was the code name for all the activities that went into the Allied invasion of France. It culminated in D-Day, where they invaded the shores of Normandy. But what you may not know is that while Operation Overlord was going on and thousands of troops were in motion and tanks and planes and ships were being mobilized, that America's most successful general was actually being commanded to stay in England. George Patton, who had been incredibly successful through his career in North Africa and in Italy, was commanded to stay in England while the rest of the forces launched into the invasion of Normandy. To make matters more confusing, Patton not only stayed, he was given a fake army. He was given an army to himself that never existed, but it had its own communication signals and leadership. They even blew up fake tanks. For this fake army. It was a confusing order, but of course, what it was designed to do is to be a form of counterintelligence that the Allied forces were using to confuse the Germans. And it worked. Germany moved some of its best armies and troops and uh, tanks to Calais because that's where they had heard Patton would be leading the main invasionary force. And so it took some pressure off Normandy and allowed the troops that were landing there to be successful. Patton was given a very confusing order that at the time didn't make sense, but it was a part of a larger plan. The book of Jonah, similarly, is the story of God giving a confusing order to a prophet of Israel that at the time didn't make sense, but it was nevertheless a part of a larger plan and purpose that he had. Jonah was a prophet in the Old Testament in the northern kingdom of Israel, living in a time of unfaithfulness and disobedience. And God comes to him and commands him to do something incredibly confusing to him. He commands him to go and tell his enemies that God loves them. But it didn't make sense to Jonah. And the book of Jonah records how Jonah wrestles with God's command. The reason this is important for you today is because frequently... You and I are asked to do things by God that don't seem to make sense. Maybe it's trusting God through a a medical diagnosis that you've been given. 
Maybe it's believing that he's going to provide financial resources in a time of uncertainty. Does that sound familiar? The reality is all of us frequently are put into places and positions where we're called to trust God, even though he gives us orders and commands through his word that are confusing. What the book of Jonah reveals is the key, the key to moving forward and trusting God in the midst of confusing orders is knowing and trusting the heart of God. You see, when I know God's heart, when I know his plans and his purposes and what he's really trying to accomplish in this world, I can trust that whatever he's asking me to do, as confusing as it might look, is nevertheless something I can trust and obey. In Jonah, in the book of Jonah this morning, as we look at it in chapter one, what we see is that God's plans and purposes always include a global heart. God has a global heart. God wants to see the nations reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In such a way that I would say it this way, to kind of sum up what this passage is teaching us this morning, this is what it is. I think it's because God has a care for the nations, because God cares for the nations, we should too. One of the reasons we can trust God in uncertainty and in confusing orders is that we can know that because God has a global heart, because God has a care and a heart for the nations of the world to respond to the gospel, we should share in that heart. Here's my point. When you and I embrace that kind of view, when we embrace that kind of belief, it frees us to trust God in the midst of uncertainty and especially when we get orders that may be confusing. I want to show you three suggestions from Jonah 1 about how you and I can cultivate the same global heart that God has in our lives. Number one, we've got to grasp God's desire for the nations. Number one, if we're going to develop God's global heart, we've got to grasp his desire for the nations. We've got to grasp God's real heartbeat for the nations around us. This passage starts with a command that Jonah has given. Look in verse 1 again with me at that command. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write four things down about this mission. Four quick words about the mission Jonah is given here. Number one, it's an unprecedented mission. This was an unprecedented mission. Normally, Hebrew prophets, prophets of Israel, were not sent to foreign nationalities. They were normally sent to their own country. This is one of the first instances we have in the Bible of a prophet of Israel not being sent to his own people, but being sent to a foreign land. If you know your Bible, you know that this is consistent with Genesis 12 where God told Abram that his descendants would be a blessing to the nations. But in this particular season, especially in this season, this was unprecedented for a prophet to be sent to a foreign land. Number two, it's not just an unprecedented mission. It's a secondly, a gracious mission. A gracious mission. Did you notice God's rationale for this mission? He says, their evil has come up before me. God is holy and perfect, sees their sin, sees the disobedience of the Assyrians and those living in Nineveh. And he says, Jonah, you've got to go and tell them 
the destructive path they're on. Don't believe, church, that the God of the Old Testament is angry and mean and that the God of the New Testament is loving and nice. Here you see the goodness of the gospel of Jesus in the Old Testament because God is saying, I'm sending you to warn them of the danger of their crimes and to tell them of my loving kindness. The loving kindness we know that cultivates in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection for our sins. This is a gracious mission Jonah's being sent on. But thirdly, we've got to also say that this is a dangerous mission. It's a dangerous mission. The Assyrians were famously brutal people. They were brutal in every way. They recorded their brutality at every victory. They killed women. They killed children. They were increasingly creative in their designs of how to torture and kill others. This is a dangerous mission for Jonah. This mission could cost him his life. But fourthly and finally, it's a confusing mission. It's a confusing mission. You see, the nation of Assyria was putting its thumb down on the nation of Israel. It was taking tribute from them. When Assyria was strong, Israel was weak. And at this particular moment in history, what we know is that Assyria wasn't at its strongest point. There were some dest- that was destabilized. There were some problems there. And so when Assyria is weak, Israel became stronger. And this was a period when Israel was beginning to spread its wings and become a little more stable and strong on its own. And so it doesn't make any sense for God to send Jonah to help his enemies. God, why would you send me to talk to people who, if I help, their strength, their dominance is going to mean our decrease, our harm as Israelites. I heard one commentator say it this way. It would be like asking a Jew living in America during World War II to fly to Berlin as a Jew and preach to the Third Reich. It would be a dangerous mission. That's very similar to what's going on here. God is telling Jonah to do something that was very confusing, dangerous, and unprecedented. How would you respond if God asked you to do something like that? What would be your gut reaction if God asked you to do something that dangerous and unprecedented and confusing? Look at how Jonah responds in verse 3. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. We see here Jonah's disobedience to God's command. I want you to write down three quick ideas that describe what this disobedience looks like, okay? Three quick ways we see what the the depth of this disobedience actually is revealed in Jonah's life. Number one, this was an intentional disobedience. Okay, this is intentional, it's deliberate. To flee to Tarshish is to go the opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh was by land, Tarshish was by sea. But what historical cultural commentary tells us is that Tarshish was also an exotic place, a place of entertainment, a place of relaxation and rest. It would be like you or me saying, uh, instead of going to Philadelphia, I'm gonna go to Hawaii. That's what Tarshish was in modern and the cultural context in which Jonah lived. This was an intentional running from what God called him to do. But we should also notice that this was an expensive disobedience. Jonah spends incredible resources. In fact, the way this passage 
uh, describes Jonah paying the fare is that Jonah was paying to commission this ship on a singular mission. He was chartering the boat just for him. By the way, it explains why later the sailors are reluctant to do anything to him because he's paying the the entire amount to charter the ship from Joppa to uh, to Tarshish. This is an expensive disobedience. It would have cost Jonah an incredibly large sum of money to charter this boat. But third and finally, this is a deceived disobedience. It's a deceived disobedience. You see, both this verse, this verse ends and ends with Jonah attempting to flee from the Lord's presence. That's Yahweh's presence, the Creator's presence. Jonah's been so hardened by his disobedience that he's blind to the fact that he can't escape the Lord's presence, and yet he still attempts to do so. Here's the summary that describes Jonah's disobedience. Jonah assumes that because he can see no good reason for God's command, that there must not be a good reason. One commentator said it best, this is a prideful assumption on Jonah's part that because he can see no reason for what God's asking him to do, there must not be a reason. This is worth just kind of pausing for a moment and reflecting on in our lives. One of the dangers we face when we're given something that's confusing or doesn't make sense is that we can assume that because we see no good reason for what God is doing, that there must not be a good reason. As we live through coronavirus and isolation and schools canceling and hour by hour things changing, it's worth noting that just because we may not always see a reason for this season of life, God has a reason. It's tough. There's a tension that this creates in our lives because we want to trust the Lord, we want to believe Him, but It's easy in our own pride to assume that because our intellect can't comprehend a reason for it, there must not be a reason. This has really hit home in my family's life. I've mentioned before that we have, I have a grandmother who's living in Memphis who's very ill, very sick. She's 90 plus years old and she's in a nursing home. And because of what's happened over the last few weeks, our family cannot get in to see her. They're not allowing us to see her and we we understand the protocols and the reason for the quarantine and the protection that it provides. But can I just be real honest with you? It's hard to see a reason for that. It's hard to talk to my mom on the phone last night and listen to her describe her tears and how painful it's been to recognize that in my, my grandmother's dying days, her mother's dying days, she cannot hold her hand and be with her. The closest thing we're getting to church is to to be able to stand at the window and wave at her and tell her that we're there, to Skype with her, to call her, but it's nothing like actually being with somebody as they're dying. It's incredibly difficult for our family. It'd be easy for us to say, you know, I don't see any good reason for this, so there must not be one. But what Jonah 1, 1 through 3, calls us to reflect on is that we're called to trust the sovereign goodness of God, that even when I can't see a good reason, that I trust that there is one. 
in Jonah's life here, the good reason that God had established was that God has a global heart. He has a heart to see not just Israel saved, but all the peoples of the earth. And while I don't know all the reasons for coronavirus and the quarantines and the isolation that we're enduring now, I can tell you that God has a plan to turn this confusion and this uncertainty into something for our good and for his glory. God has a plan to see people of the nations through this destabilizing time come to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is in part why we've partnered as a church with Germany and the missionaries there and the work that they're doing. We've seen scores of precious Muslim brothers and sisters come to faith in Jesus come to believe in Jesus as Savior because the destabilizing and the war that's in their region has led them into Europe and to an openness to the gospel that we've been able to step in and share Christ. What's God doing right now in our country, in our world, through this uncertainty and this discouragement? Could it be that God is working and moving through this in such a way that he's opening our eyes to opportunities that we never dreamed would be in place? So let me ask you this question. Are you more concerned in this season with your comfort and going back to normalcy than you are with seeking what God is doing in this world? I'll be the first to tell you, homeschooling in the Plumley House has been tough, been challenging. This new season we're in is bringing all kind of challenges, and it's very easy to just get on your knees and say, oh, Lord, please just let it go back to normal. Oh, please, God, just take us back to the way it was. But I know God is doing something new right now. God's up to something. God's on the move. And just because I can't see it right now doesn't mean it's not happening. First thing we've got to do if we're going to embrace God's global heart is we've got to grasp his desire for the nations and how that desire moves him to do things we don't always understand. Number two, this passage also teaches us that we're to believe in God's power for the nations. We're to believe God's power for the nations. Look at how God responds to Jonah's disobedience. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea And such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. God hurls a powerful storm into Jonah's life, into the ship. So powerful was the storm that this ship, piloted by seasoned sailors, begins to break apart. I like the way Tim Keller says this in his book about Jonah. He says, all sin has a storm attached to it. All sin has a consequence attached to it. Because you see, sin is a violation of the design God has put in place. And when I violate God's design, I always reap consequence in my life. Jonah's experiencing that consequence. This powerful storm is God's response. But I want you to notice that in the midst of this storm, God's doing more than just stopping Jonah. God is also exposing Jonah. One of the things that the author does in verses 5 through 10 is he's going to contrast Jonah's response to the storm to the sailor's response. 
So, so let me set the table before I read this, okay? These sailors are pagan, polytheistic idolaters. They don't believe in the true God. They don't worship him. They're pagans. Jonah is a fine, upstanding prophet of Israel who's supposed to have it all together. But what, what I want you to notice is how the sailors are actually the ones who respond in a spiritually mature way and not Jonah. Look at verses 5 through 10 and see how this contrast shows up. It says, The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah, here's Jonah's response, had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out to, and fallen into a deep sleep. Notice the sailors in response. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up! Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who it is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by great fear and said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them so. At every step of the way, this storm doesn't just stop Jonah. It exposes that Jonah has been hardened by his sin. These pagan sailors... These idolaters are responding with more spiritual sensitivity than Jonah is. They see that this storm is no man-made activity. They know that this is divine in its origin. Jonah remains silent. He sleeps. He only reluctantly responds that he's a Hebrew and that he worships the Lord. But it's the sailors at every point who are trying to get out of the mess that they're in. See, the storm shows us that God was always one step ahead of Jonah. But what we've got to recognize is that in stopping Jonah and exposing Jonah, God's plan for the storm was never meant to hurt Jonah. The storm was actually meant to help him. We've got to recognize that storms in our lives do not represent the absence of God Storms in our lives actually represent the presence of God. This storm was not designed to hurt Jonah. It was designed to transform him. It was designed to change him. It was designed to do a work in his life. Here's the point. God is fundamentally committed to transforming you and I into his ambassadors. Because don't miss this. God's work of exposing Jonah, God's work of stopping Jonah was not just to hurt him or just to help him even. It was to do a work in Jonah so that he could work through Jonah. See, the storms that God brings in our lives, yes, are there to confront our sin, to confront our idolatry, to confront our sinful hearts. But the storms God is unleashing in your life and in my life are there not just to change us, but to transform us in such a way that God is not just working in us. God begins to work through us. I mentioned a moment ago our partners in Germany 
And one of the great privileges you'll have if you ever go on one of our trips is you get to work with a team there who has experienced incredible persecution and difficulty. I remember sitting in the front seat of a car with a man from a Muslim country who'd come to Christ and was now on the front lines of sharing the gospel with other Muslims. And it's just incredible to listen to the rejection he's faced from his family. The attempts that they've actually made on his life to kill him. The rejection and isolation he's felt as a result of that is he's been isolated from his people and now he's all alone, but he's been embraced by brothers and sisters in Christ and now he's sharing the gospel with the very Muslims who are trying to kill him. You see, it would have been very easy for this man to let the storms in his life make him bitter or angry or isolated. But the reality, what God did is the storms in his life did such a work in him that God began to work through him. So the application that I would appeal to you this morning is simply this. Embrace the sovereignty of God in your life. Don't be naive about God's sovereignty and his power. Coronavirus is not an accident. I hear people very erroneously always say, God didn't want this to happen. It's not true. You cannot square that statement with the teaching of the Bible that God is sovereign, that he's in control of all things. We can have a discussion about how differently God relates to evil and how he relates to good, but it doesn't change the fact that God's over all things. There's not a molecule in this universe that's outside of God's control. But we also have to guard against bitterness in our lives about God's sovereignty. Don't live in denial about it, but don't live in bitterness about sovereignty. God is not just powerful. He's not just sovereign. He's good. God has a plan and a purpose for every single storm in your life. Could it be that this morning some of us have misunderstood storms that are raging in our lives right now? Could it be that there are some of us who've grown bitter or angry because of suffering and difficulty we faced? Can I just appeal to you as you're sitting in your living room, on your couch, at your kitchen table with your kids there, believe that God has a plan and a purpose for every storm in your life. And it's not to hurt you, believer. It's to transform you. If we're going to adopt God's global heart, we've got to believe in his power that's at work in our lives, not just to work in us, but to work through us to reach the world for Christ. Thirdly and finally, write this down. We've also got to work for God's deliverance of the nations. We've got to work for the deliverance of the nations. Look at verse 11 to see how the sailors respond in desperation. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. Look at what Jonah says. Pick me up, throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I am to blame for this great storm that is against you. Now we need to recognize something about Jonah's response. Because this is one of the low points of the entire book. Jonah is not responding just out of uh, care for the sailors. He's not saying throw me into the sea just to protect them. 
This throw me into the sea comment is the height of Jonah's hardening disobedience. Remember, at any point, he could have said, turn this ship around, take me back to Joppa so that I can go do what God's called me to do. He could have repented at any moment. But what this represents is Jonah's desire to die rather than to do what God had told him to do. The storm was raging so fiercely that Jonah assumed that if he were to be thrown in the water, that while it might calm down to be so far from shore, so far from safety, that this would ensure his death. Jonah would rather die because he's not convinced that if he fully surrenders to God, that God will take care of him. When we face storms in life, one of the things we have to decide is to not respond in the way Jonah has. To respond in repentance and faith that says, God, I'm going to trust you no matter what. You do with my life whatever you want to do because I trust that you will take care of me. The sailors aren't convinced this is the only way. They try everything they can to avoid throwing Jonah into the water. But then look what happens in verse 14. It says, they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. And they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Two miracles here in these three verses, and I want you to write the first one down. The first one is God stops the storm. First miracle, God stops the storm. The minute, the very second Jonah hits the water, this fierce storm stops. God brings a miracle in this moment. God stops the storm. It's similar to Jesus calming the storm with just a word. I love what one commentator said that Jesus can calm the storm with a word because his voice was recognized by the storm as the voice of its creator. God flexes his muscles and shows that he is the creator God who's sovereign and powerful. But the second miracle here is not just that God stops the storm. Miracle two, write this down, God saves the sailors. God saves the sailors. The sailors cry out to the Lord. They ask that they wouldn't be punished for throwing Jonah into the sea. And then once they do, it says that they were seized with fear and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows to him. Now remember who these guys are. These are polytheistic idolaters, idolaters at heart. They're pagan sailors. And yet now they're the ones worshiping the Lord. They're the ones offering sacrifices. They're the ones making vows to him. They're calling out to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who redeemed his people from Israel, from Egypt, and the slavery and bondage of that place. What we're reading in these verses is the modern-day equivalent to conversion. These men are radically saved. And notice the timing of this. They're not saved in the midst of the storm. 
They don't offer vows as a deal with God to get them out of the trouble they're in. They're saved after the storm's already gone. They're saved not in response to do for what God has done for them. They're responding to who God is. This is not a foxhole conversion. This is their worship of the true and the living God. Here's the point. Even in Jonah's disobedience, the nations are reached. Think about the complexity of what God is doing here. Not only in the storm is God stopping and exposing Jonah, but God is also saving and redeeming these Gentile pagan sailors. Could it be that a storm that you're in right now is something God is using not just in your life, but something he's using in the people that are around you and watching you. People that are watching how you respond on social media. People that are watching how you respond as you engage in conversation. People that watch your attitude and your response to the fear that's rippling all throughout our world. Could it be that how you and I are responding to the storm that is coronavirus is God's way of reaching and redeeming the people around us? Now, I want to clarify, this is not a license to sin. This is not freedom to say, well, if God's going to save everybody anyway, and he's doing it even in Jonah's disobedience, I can be disobedient and do whatever I want, and God's still going to clean it all up in the end. That's not the point here. The point is that we have the good news, the assurance that God can use his people in spite of their flaws and their brokenness and their failures to accomplish his plan. And I got to tell you, church, as a pastor, as somebody who preaches the gospel every week, as somebody who opens God's word weekly and teaches people, that is really, really good news for us. That God can use us in the midst of, of our failings and our flaws. You and I need to partner with God in this season. We need to link arms together to think through ways that we can reach our community and the world for Christ. I'll be perfectly honest, I don't know all the ways of what that's gonna look like right now. I don't have all the answers to how we, in this season of isolation and quarantine and school closings, can reach our community for the gospel. Not a lot of questions I have, but I do know this. God's on the move. God's working and moving in this world and in this community. And what you and I need to do is to get on our knees before God and say, God, we want to partner with what you're doing in this world. When other people are losing their head and running away afraid and giving into hysteria, which we see everywhere around us today, we're going to be people who keep our heads who fix our eyes on our Savior and say, what are you up to in this world? What are you doing and moving and working in in this season of uncertainty and confusion? What this is a call for, church, is it's a call to trust the living God, that he's moving and working. My prayer is that Jonah 1 gives us a clearer picture that we can trust God even when it doesn't make sense that we can trust him, even when we can't see a good reason for it, that he's on the move because he has this global heart. My prayer for you and me today is that we would trust 
God's global heart, and we would cultivate that similar heart in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died and rose again for our sins. God, I pray for anyone watching this today who doesn't know you. God, I pray that they would turn from their sin, place their faith and trust in you, and follow you all of their days. God, I pray for the believers watching this this morning. God, that you would work in our lives as we look at this season of uncertainty and fear, and that we would not give in to those things, and instead we would trust that you have a plan and a purpose for this, even this season of life. God, we thank you in Jesus' name for your love and mercy and kindness. We pray that you would find us faithful to fix our eyes on you in this difficult season. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, this has been different, huh? Thank you so much this morning for worshiping with us, for praying with us, for opening God's word together. I pray that this message and this music and this prayer, this time of prayer has been encouraging to you. Please, again, if you haven't already, comment on this post. We'd love to know that you were here. Tell us how many people were watching with you. Share this to your Facebook page. Be aware, and again, remember the digital ministry plan. Every single day there's going to be content that you and your family can be blessed by from our staff and our leadership. And please remember to be people of prayer in this season, trusting the Lord that he's going to do something powerful. Families, remember that Pastor Dave and Maureen have put together this family ministry activity. I think it's already on our Facebook page. Download that, grab that, and really engage with your kids in this important season. Thank you for watching. And we will be here same time, same uh, place next week for online worship. Thank you.